Well, good morning again, everyone. Thanks for being here. If we have not met, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor at Cross of Life. We're thankful for all of you who are in person and, of course, those of you who are watching online and may also watch this message later. Um, This new series that we're starting is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And it is a series based on this book by John Mark Comer, uh, by the same title, that I read back in winter and was deeply impacted by. And one of my goals as a pastor for at least the next couple years of our existence together as a congregation is to introduce you to really intelligently written books in certain certain sermon series um, in order to show you that the intelligent ideas that are actually getting published even in our day are so in line with God's word and can unpack amazing ideas that we would not maybe find otherwise. Um, Part of this is because it's easy for me, (laughs) I'm going to admit that. Uh, The creative juices don't have to flow as much when somebody has already done the creative work for me. But there's a second part of this, and that's that I want you to see the deep truths of Scripture put together in a really intelligent way. And so while I wouldn't necessarily uh, recommend John Mark Homer's book completely, I think there's some things in there that I disagree with. The ideas that he is opening up are in line with Scripture, Um, And I want to show you less of what John Mark Homer has to say and more of what Scripture has to say along this path of ruthlessly eliminating hurry from our lives. So the text that we're going to look at is uh, the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead by Jesus. I'll read the text for us, and then we'll talk about it. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know now that, that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they said. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. 
Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the gospel of the Lord. I don't know if you've noticed, but we have a hurry problem. Two of the most common answers you would get to the question, how are you doing today, would be, oh good, just tired, or, oh good, just busy. In fact, you might exclusively receive those answers in our culture, maybe even some of you already said that this morning. We're busy and tired as a culture. And this goes across demographics, right? If you are a man or woman, young or old, black or white, rich or poor, it doesn't matter, we are all busy and tired. And despite the fact that we say that with a little bit of lament in our voice, just tired, just busy, we kind of deep down like it, don't we? Not that any of of us like being specifically tired or busy, but we know that by being tired or busy, we're signaling something. In our culture, success is marked by accomplishments and productivity and hard work. And therefore, if I am busy or tired, then I must be producing, accomplishing, or working hard. And therefore, while I don't particularly like being busy or tired, I have to say that in order to extract social capital from our conversation. We're all busy and tired. Because our world, particularly Western culture, is obsessed with fast We love fast things. So much so that even though the word slow is not a particularly negative word, we start using it in negative contexts. Like if you have a child who is not developing the same way as other children around them, you might call that child slow. Or if a movie or a TV show isn't as entertaining as you thought it should be, you might call it slow. Or if you have to sit at the restaurant across the table from a person for more than an hour waiting for your food to the point where you actually have to talk to them about something, we might call the service slow. We love fast as a culture, and slow is bad in our culture. Here's the problem. That is literally antithetical to God. It is the exact opposite of who God is and what God wants for us. Let me show you how. If you were to describe God, what words would you use? Probably one of the first words that would come to most of our minds is love, right? God is love, the Bible says. Thankfully for us, the Bible also defines love. In that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, that often gets read at weddings, the Apostle Paul defines what love is. And do you remember what the very first descriptor of love is? Love is patient. Love is slow. When God reveals himself to Moses, he calls himself the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. God is slow because God is love and love is slow. 
You know this if you have children. You know this if you have a spouse. You know this if you love anybody deeply. It's time-consuming. It takes a lot of painstaking time to love a person well. Love is slow. It can't be done quickly. In fact, think of the moments when you've been hasty around the people that you love. Aren't those the moments where you say something careless or do something thoughtlessly? Love is slow. And by the way, this keeps playing itself out in the other characteristics of God. Like, think of the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit being God. What does the fruit of the Spirit look like? Well, love is the first one. What's the second one? Love, joy. How many of you are joyful when you're trying to get your type B spouse out the door with your kids in order to get to a place that you're probably going to be late? Not many of us are joyful doing that. Love, joy, peace. How many of us are peaceful when we're sitting in traffic wishing we were somewhere where we're not, or standing in line at the grocery store with a, check, a cashier who is not going as quickly as we would like. Christians, we say that we walk with God. By the way, notice, walk, not run. And we think that in our hurried pace, we're going the same speed as he is. Why would we think for a moment that we are walking with him when we can't walk at his pace? But if you're not a Christian, which some who may see this message might not be, This is just true across the board. Even if you're not a Christian, if you don't have the same conception of God that the Bible has, you're still going to agree with this. This is true back to ancient history. Uh, The Greeks had a god. His name was Kronos. He was the god of time. Uh, Maybe you've seen him as Father Time, more modernly, uh, with a scythe in his hand. He is the constant marching forward of time. He was the personification of that. And in many of the art that depicted Kronos, he was actually depicted as clipping Cupid's wings. You remember, Cupid was the god of love. But Kronos would clip Cupid's wings because what even the Greeks understood nearly 2,000 years ago was that time, if not used well, kills love. But modern psychology, of course, agrees with this too. If you would go to any self-help guru or self-help book or go to even another religion, they would say something to the effect that if you want to live a fulfilling life, you have to live in the moment. Because the moment you start worrying about the future or the moment you start worrying about the past, you compress everything that's in those time periods into this present moment, fill this present moment with all of the stress and all of the worry and all the responsibilities and you become anxious or worried or hurried But if you can, for a moment, detach from those things and live in the moment, you will be, well, loving, joyful, peaceful, they would even say. Now, we're going to explore why that doesn't really work, apart from a Christian worldview, but the point is to say everyone gets this, except very few of us live like it, right? Now, I'm going to focus my message primarily on Christians, because the majority of you who are here and online are going to be Christians. Uh, Michael Zigarelli, uh, he was a researcher who studied the idea of why Christians don't grow in their faith, why some Christians don't grow in their faith. He wrote this, uh, excuse me, he wrote, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to, number two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, number three, a deteriorating relationship with God, Which leads to, number four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, number five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. This is a guy who studies, why do Christians not grow in their faith? He says, we're too busy, we're too hurried, we're too overloaded. 
John Ortberg, he's a pastor and author, he writes this, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. And then Ronald Rollheiser, he's a Catholic theologian and philosopher, he writes this, and this is maybe the like money quote of this entire book. I just think this is fantastic. Look at this. He says, we, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Just let that sit in your heart for a second. All the things, good and bad, distracting us into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God or depth or spirit. We would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar, screen, radar screens. We are more, uh, we aren't, excuse me, we're more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Or as Caleb Schultz likes to say it to his wife, my training is in releasing people from the grip of Satan. But I feel like most of the time, I'm just trying to release people from the grip of distraction. You feeling this? You feeling this culture that we live in? I'm convinced the biggest problem in the Christian church and therefore the world is that we are too distracted. We think about any of the problems that go on in our society, even in our churches. Why do they happen? Well, because people don't notice them. If we would notice them, we would solve them, but we don't notice them because we're distracted. Even sometimes so distracted that we just completely neglect the problems or outsource those problems to other people who solve them their way, which may not be in line with our values. And then we get angry at them, even though it was our problem in the first place. We're so distracted, we're so preoccupied, we're so hurried, we're so rushed that the problems that we have, we don't even have the time to solve. We don't have the mental space to solve them because we're on to the next thing. Can I tell you, historically, it wasn't always this way? Like, if you look back at history, our conception of time today is super weird. <laughs> uh, we're very hurried comparatively to every other culture that has existed before us. There's a number of places you could go in history, but maybe the best place to start for the Western world in modern life is 1370 in the city of Cologne, Germany, where the first public clock tower was erected. Now, before this, people had a conception of time and minutes and hours and these sorts of things, but it was the first time that a whole city could be united under one clock, where everyone could look at that clock and know exactly what the time was for everybody. And all of a sudden, you didn't have to go simply by what time it felt like during the day or where the sun was in the sky, but you were now slave to this exacting ticking clock that everybody could see. Now, I'm going to say multiple times, I'm not against technology, I'm not against the clock, but I want us to see what it does. It goes straight against what God actually prescribed for us when he created us. God created in Genesis the vault of the sky, and put lights in that vault of the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And what does he say they do? They serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. God says, your conception of time as creatures is based on the sun, moon, and stars. And yet how quickly we run to something artificial, something man-made, seconds, minutes, hours, to mark our time. 
As one French medievalist at the time, Jacques Legoff said, uh, life before the clock went up in Cologne was like this. He said, life was dominated by agrarian rhythms, free of haste, careless of exactitude, unconcerned by productivity. Sounds nice, doesn't it? But the clock changed all that. Fast forward then to 1879, and Thomas Edison invents the light bulb. And the light bulb completely changes life again for us. At this time, we, of course, could mark things by seconds and minutes and hours, but we were still subject to the rising and falling of the sun. But all of a sudden, this light bulb made it possible for us to stay up past sunlight or sunset. We could add more work to our schedule, more things we could do. Today, we would say uh, if a person sleeps seven hours a night, that's pretty good. Like, we would maybe congratulate them, give them some slaps in the back. Like, you sleep seven hours every night? Good job. Do you want to know how much people slept before Thomas Edison invented the light bulb? Anyone got a guess? You could say it out loud. How many hours do you think people slept a night? 10? 13? Pretty close. 11. 11 hours a night. Just think, no matter how much you sleep, if you added four hours to your sleep, how much more rested would you be? How much more healthy would you be? How much less anxious and exhausted would you be? How much better of a control over your emotions, over your mental capacities? Like, how much would that change your life? And we threw it away. And then after the invention of the light bulb came a series of inventions across the 20th century. In fact, if you know anything about inventions, you know we invented more things in the 20th century than we did in the rest of history combined up to that point. And most of those things were time-saving inventions. So much so that an 18, or 1967 United States Senate subcommittee produced a report in 1967 that they said the problem of the next generation is going to be too much leisure time. They reported that by 1985, it was 1967, they said by 1985, the average American would be working 22 hours a week for 27 weeks of the year. Were they right? <laughs> no, because despite the fact that all those time-saving technologies certainly did save our time, we just filled that time with more things to do and more things to care about. And then, of course, you have to bring in blue laws, right? In Canada, we had a blue law called the Lord's Day Act from 1906. Maybe some of you remember that if you're a little bit older. No business transactions on Sunday in this country until 1985. Note, by the way, the year, the same year the U.S. Senate subcommittee thought that we were going to have too much leisure. The Supreme Court of Canada struck down the Lord's Day Act and made it possible for us to do business on Sundays. And you can have your opinions about blue laws politically. It, frankly, it doesn't much matter to me. The fact is we had a built-in day off in this country. And then we took it away so we could work more and we could buy more, and we could run around more. And then came 2007, the year that Apple re uh, released the iPhone, which, by the way, was about the same time a microblogging site named Twitter became its own platform, and an upstart social network called Facebook became available to anybody with an email address. The internet suddenly was not on a cumbersome desktop computer in your office, it was in your hand, and it came along with everyone's opinions on everything. <laughs> Which gave you the ability to know everything about everything and to care about everything about everything at a speed never before seen in the history of humanity. Nicholas Carr, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner uh, for his book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. He wrote this, 
says, what the internet seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the internet distributes it, a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in a sea of words, now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Does that resonate with you? Think about how you read news as you scroll through your phone. How many of you just read the headline and don't read the article? How many of you read the headline, click on the article, read a couple sentences, and then get distracted on something else? How many of you open an article and sit on it and stew for an hour? We used to be able to think deeply and concentrate and contemplate and think about what is this author saying? Where is he coming from? What facts does he have? Who are his sources? Does this fit with what he said last week? But now we skim along the surface, covering a lot of ground with no depth. And the psychological results, despite just our ability to intake information of using the iPhone, have started to come in too. 15 years ago, the iPhone came out, and even within 10 years of the iPhone coming out, studies were starting to show the negative effects on our brains. One study from 2016 said that the average person touches their smartphone 2,617 times a day. And at that time, it was double, almost double, with millennials who were in their 20s at that time. And the effects lead some psychiatrists to say this qualifies as an addiction. Like, same as a heroin addiction or a porn addiction, it's a phone addiction. And in the same way that addictions have negative effects on our, our uh, psychological capacities, the phone addiction does the same thing. One study from that same time, 2016, showed that even if your phone is off and it is out of your reach, you can't grab it, but it's still in the room with you, you have a reduced ability with working memory and problem-solving skills. In other words, your phone can be in the same room but out of your reach and it still makes you dumber. To illustrate this, before the iPhone came out, the average human attention span was 12 seconds. Now the average human attention span is 8 seconds. And for reference, a goldfish has a 9-second attention span. And to illustrate this, before the iPhone came out, humans had a 12-second attention span. And now they have an 8-second attention span. And for reference, a goldfish has a nine-second attention span. I'm not sure how well that joke was going to go over. Thank you for laughing at it. Here's the point. You might think that I'm advocating that we go back to some pre-technology Luddite experience of life. I'm not. Although that might be a good idea for some of us. I'm really not advocating for that. I'm asking us to evaluate the things that God has allowed our minds to create and see, are they bringing us closer to God or are they bringing us farther away from God? I don't frankly care that much if you have a phone or if you go on Facebook or what you watch on Netflix all that much. I'm asking, does this bring you closer to God or not? Are you a hurried person? Are you a victim of your culture? Constantly rushing around, worrying about every last thing that you could possibly worry about so much that you have no space in your brain to actually deal with life. To finish this part, the, the diagnosis section of the sermon, I want to read from John Mark Homer's book. He has a, a ten, 10 characteristics of a person who is hurried. I put them on your notes for you if you want to follow along. Um, as I read them, I'd love for you just to like make a little check mark or circle or something next to each one of these that describes you, just to see how hurried you might actually be. All right, 
Characteristic number one, irritability. He says, you get mad, frustrated, or just annoyed way too easily. Little normal things irk you. People have to tiptoe around your ongoing low-grade negativity, if not anger. A word of advice from a fellow eggshell expert. To self-diagnose, don't look at how you treat a colleague or a neighbor, look at how you treat those closest to you, your spouse, your children, your roommate. Number two, hypersensitivity. All it takes is a minor comment to hurt your feelings, or a grumpy email to set you off, or a little turn of events to throw you into an emotional funk and ruin your day. Minor things quickly escalate to major emotional events. Depending on your personality, this might show up as anger, or nitpickiness, or anxiety, or depression, or just tiredness. Point is, the ordinary problems of life this side of Eden have a disproportionate effect on your emotional well-being and relational grace. Number three, restlessness. When you actually do try to slow down and rest, you can't relax. You give Sabbath a try, but you hate it. You read scripture, but you find it boring. You have quiet time with God, but you can't focus your mind. You go to bed early, but you toss and turn with anxiety. You watch TV, but simultaneously check your phone, fold laundry, or get into a spat on Twitter. Your mind and body are hyped up on the drug of speed. And when they don't get their next dopamine fix, they shiver. Number four, nonstop activity. You just don't know when to stop. Or worse, you can't stop. Another hour, another day, another week. Your drugs of choice are accomplishment and accumulation. These could show up as careerism or just an obsessive house cleaning or errand running. The result? You fall prey to sunset fatigue, where by day's end you have nothing left to give your spouse, children, or loved ones. They get the grouchy, curt, overtired you, and it's not pretty. Emotional numbness. You just don't have the capacity to feel another's pain, or your own pain for that matter. Empathy is a rare feeling for you. You just don't have time for it. Number six, out of order priorities. You feel disconnected from your identity and calling. You're always getting sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, not the important. Your life is reactive, not proactive. You're busier than ever before, you, b- before yet still you feel like you ha- uh, don't have time for what really matters to you. Months often go by, or years, or God forbid, maybe even decades, and you realize you still haven't gotten around to all the things you said were the most important in your life. Lack of care for your body. You don't have time for the basics. Eight hours of sleep a night, daily exercise, healthy home-cooked food, minimal stimulants, margin. You gain weight, you get sick multiple times a year, regularly wake up tired, don't sleep well, live off the four horsemen of the industrialized food apocalypse, caffeine, sugar, processed carbs, and alcohol. Number eight, escapist behaviors. When we're too tired to do what's actually life-giving for our souls, we each turn to our distraction of choice. Overeating, overdrinking, binge-watching Netflix, browsing social media, surfing the web, looking at porn, name your uh, preferred cultural narcotic. Narcotics are good, healthy even, on an occasional and short-term basis when they shield us from unnecessary pain, but when we abuse them to escape reality, they eat us alive. Number nine, slippage of spiritual disciplines. If you're anything like me, when you're over busy, the things that are truly life-giving for your soul are the first to go rather than your first to go to, such as quiet time in the morning, scripture, prayer, Sabbath, worship on Sunday, a meal with your community, and so on. Because in an ironic catch-22, the things that make for rest actually take a bit of emotional energy and self-discipline. When we get over busy, we get overtired, and when we get overtired, we don't have the energy or discipline to do what we need most for our souls and repeat. And finally, isolation. You feel disconnected from God, others, and your own soul. On those rare times when you actually stop to pray, and by pray, I don't mean ask God for stuff, I mean sit with God in the quiet, you're so stressed and distracted that your mind can't settle down long enough to enjoy the Father's company. 
Same with your friends. When you're with them, you're also with your phone, or a million miles away in your mind, running down the to-do list. And even when you're alone, you come face-to-face with the void that is your soul, and immediately run back to the familiar groove of busyness and digital distraction. So how'd you do? Seven? Eight? (laughs) Ten? This is real. This is what we struggle with. So thank God for Jesus. Because today I want to show you just one thing. We'll talk about all the practical applications about how to unhurry your life, but I just want to show you Jesus today. And and before we do that, I want to make one caveat statement. I think it's easy as we read these things to identify some of us. Some of us get this right between the nose, right? I am hurried. I'm rushing. I'm going on to the next thing. I'm constantly thinking about everything. But there's something here also for those of us who feel like we're busy because we have to. Like, I'm thinking young moms, people working two jobs, like people who are genuinely busy because if they don't, someone's going to die or the bills aren't going to get paid. This is for you too. Because you can be busy without being hurried. And on the opposite side, you can be hurried without being busy. There are some of us who don't do all that much, but we live a life of constant anxiety and worry about everything. And so there's something here for everybody. And we're going to work that out in the coming weeks, but today I just want you to see Jesus because he is the most unhurried man ever. Why? Because he was so in tune with God's heart. And so I want to show you him and I want to show you what he had so that you can know that you also have it in him and you can start down a path of unhurry. The text I read for us from John is one of the most famous stories of Jesus. And there are 101 applications that I could make of that, of that text. I could preach on it for four or five weeks, but for the sake of time, I'm going to focus on one thing today from this text, and that is how unhurried Jesus is. So you remember the story, right? Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is sick and to the point of dying. And the text tells us, in fact, John goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And so what happens next is absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, maybe you like, had a moment you had to double-take as we read the text the first time. What does John say? Now, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, so when, she heard, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Does that make any sense to you? If some of you have loved ones who live far away, and it might take you two days to get to them if you heard they were dying, because you would have to buy a plane ticket and then wait for two days in security at Pearson, and then you'd finally fly out there, but none of you would just sit on your butt for two days and wait, would you? You would go there because your friend or your family member is dying. Jesus doesn't. Why? I'll explain later. Hold on to that thought. He finally gets on his way from where he was by the Jordan River all the way to Bethany, which is probably considered a suburb of Jerusalem is how we would talk about it today. It was about a two-day journey, especially if you were hoofing it because your friend was dying. Um, But it seems like Jesus actually took longer than the two-day journey to get to Bethany. When he finally gets there, he meets Mary and Martha. And interestingly, Mary and Martha both bring him the exact same statement. Did you notice it in the text? Martha comes first and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She gets it. You should have been here faster, Jesus. It seems like you were slow. Mary also asks the same thing, right? Later in the text, she says the same thing. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But Jesus reacts very differently to both of them, doesn't he? To Martha, he has a theological discussion where he exposes this beautiful truth. He says, I am the resurrection of life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies, and he who lives by believing in me will never die. But with Mary, he doesn't say a thing. He doesn't bring in a theological teaching. He just simply is feeling her emotions. 
He sees her weeping. He sees the other Jews weeping, and he himself is deeply moved in spirit to the point where we get the shortest verse in the entire Bible. Jesus wept. He felt his emotions with her. No emotional deadness in Jesus. He then goes to the tomb and does the exact same thing with his own emotions. He is deeply moved at the tomb, which maybe I've said this before, but this is not a very good translation. The word there means something like a large animal's bellow or roar. God, God himself is feeling deep emotion about this moment. But then even before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he takes time to pray. And his prayer is super interesting because he doesn't pray for himself. God, give me the power to do this. No, he says, God, you always hear me. I'm just praying so that everyone around you can hear me pray. And then finally, you know what happens. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And so take stock of this. How unhurried is Jesus? He doesn't leave for two days. He takes the slow trip around. He takes the time to talk with Martha. He takes the time to feel emotions with Mary. He takes the time to feel his own emotions at the tomb, and he takes time to pray. He's so unhurried. Now, the the interesting question is why? Why is he so unhurried? And I actually think it doesn't take a biblical scholar to figure out why. A simple reading of the text reveals to you that right at the beginning of this text, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. But as soon as he finds out about Lazarus' sickness, he says, this sickness isn't going to end in death because he knows he's God. He knows what's going to happen. He knows he can heal him. He knows he can raise him from the dead. Nothing to worry about here. Jesus has all of the resources and all of the training necessary to make a terrible situation into a good situation. Think fireman, right? Firemen can run into a burning building because they have the necessary resources and the necessary training to be brave about that moment when the rest of us would be absolutely terrified. But I think if you dig a little bit deeper on this, you see something really profound. Jesus was not worried about death. He just was not worried about it, right? Because he had the ability to undo it. But the problem for us is that we do fear death. In fact, hurry comes from the fear of death. Think about it again. You're you're Jesus and you hear that your friend Lazarus is sick. And let's for a second just hypothesize that you can't actually raise the dead. Well, you are going to rush there as fast as you can because you need to talk to him because if he dies, you can't talk to him anymore. You can't say, "I, I love you or I forgive you or I'm sorry or whatever it is. But if you don't have the fear of death, if you know the death is not the end, you don't have to hurry. But we still fear death. And we fear it in a thousand different ways. Let's imagine for a second you're a teenager um, and you want to get as many experiences out of your life as possible because you know eventually you're going to get into the real part of your life where you're going to get married and have kids or whatever you're going to do and you're trying to get as much out of this moment as possible. You're trying to look as cool, have all the, the successes that you possibly have in school and you're running around and you're anxious and you're worried about all of it. Why? Well, because you know eventually you're going to graduate and whatever you've done during those years, it's going to be marked at the end of those years, or you know that you're going to get older, and when you get older, you're not going to have the time or the energy to do these things. You fear death. You fear the progression of life that goes ultimately to death. Or let's say you're in your 30s, let's say, and maybe you're in your early 30s, you're trying to get that last bit of travel out of life before you have kids, and so you're either working your butt off to get enough money to go on the trip, or you're trying to plan the trip and trying to figure out how to get out of work in order to do that, and you're hurried, and you're anxious, and you're worried, Why? Because you realize the progression of life leads to a place where you can't do this anymore. 
Or maybe you're in your 30s and you're working that job and you've gotten into your career now. You've settled down a little bit, but the nose is to the grindstone. You have to put in extra hours. You have to get extra jobs. You have to build your clientele. You have to grow in the community or in the um, business because you know that retirement is eventually going to come. And if you don't put the hard work in these years, you won't have success then. Or you're middle-aged and the kids have moved out of the house and you realize that all the purpose you had in your life that was put into your children is now gone. And what are you going to do with yourself? You realize you're getting close to the end of your life, so, well, let's do all the things I wanted to do before. And you worry and you're anxious. Or maybe you're getting close to retirement and you're worried and anxious that you're going to have enough money to live out your years. Or maybe you're past that age and you're on the home stretch and you have maybe 10 years more on this earth and you're worried and anxious and you're trying to fill your life with everything because you fear death. It's the same problem for all of us. We fear death. We see the clock ticking on our life. And whether we are six or 66, we feel it. So all of our hurry comes from a fear of death. But Jesus doesn't fear death. And his unhurry that comes from his lack of fear of death allows him, first of all, to generously listen. Right? He, he generously listens to Mary and Martha. They both say the same words to him, but he hears different things from them because he takes the time to feel their emotions. You ever had this happen to you? Maybe if you're married, your spouse says something and you, you hear one thing, but they meant another thing, and it's usually because you're not listening that well. Jesus isn't like that. And then when he generously listens, first of all, he has the time to patiently teach Martha. He doesn't just text her a Bible verse. He takes the time to ask her questions. Do you believe this? Do you understand this? This is what I'm coming to do. And then he reinforces it later. Didn't I tell you that you would see the glory of God? He has the time to feel Mary's emotions with her. He has the time to feel his own emotions at the tomb. And finally, maybe the one that we gloss over when we read the text, he had the time to pray. I don't know about you, but one of the biggest temptations Satan brings against me is you don't have time to pray. And by the way, he usually never tempts me with something terrible, like, you don't have time to pray, you need to go steal your neighbor's car. (laughs) He usually says something really good, right? Like, you don't have time to pray because you need to clean up the living room. You need to help your wife with the kids. You need to make sure you get started on work early today. But Jesus had time to pray because he didn't fear death. So good for Jesus, eh? But what about us? You don't have to fear death. Because in the same way that Jesus opened Lazarus' tomb so that Lazarus' life would not end there but would continue, not just on this earth, but would continue eternally, your life also will be forever. Your life is not contained in the 60 or 70 or 80 years you get on this earth. It is contained in eternity. And if the clock is going to stop and there will be no time, why are you rushing? What are you worried about? You don't have to fear death. So slow down. Or another way to think of it is to stop thinking of your life in terms of hours and days and years. Think of your life more in terms of eternity. If I'm going to live forever, how much does this matter? If I'm going to live forever, how much should I care? How much should I invest? Now, to illustrate this all to you, I want you to remember the great classic movie, Groundhog Day. This will be your memory hook from when you go home. I hope many of you have seen the movie. If not, you missed out. One of Bill Murray's best performances, in my opinion. If you haven't seen the movie, spoiler alert, this is kind of how it goes. Um, 
Bill Murray plays a character, Phil Connors, who is a reporter. He goes from the big city to a small town in Pennsylvania, and he absolutely hates it. But then he gets stuck in an infinite time loop of Groundhog Day. He has to do the same thing every single day, whether he falls asleep at the end of night or he dies. He goes back to the beginning of the day and he keeps living the same day over and over and over again. And if you remember the plot, uh, he actually does a whole bunch of terrible things early in the movie as he figures out that he has essentially infinite life in Puxitani, Pennsylvania. But later in the movie, he starts to realize that this infinite time loop should actually make him behave differently. Because he realizes that he really doesn't have a future or a past. Like, what happened in the past doesn't matter because he's in this infinite time loop, and whatever happens in the future doesn't matter because there is no future because he's stuck in his infinite time loop. And so what he does is instead of trying to get the most out of the day, sucking the most out of the day because it's going to be the same tomorrow, he enjoys the moment. He enjoys the little things, and eventually he falls in love, and the cycle is broken, and that's how the movie ends. But there's something in there for us to learn. When we are so worried about what's going to happen in the future, we lose the moment that we're in. When we're so worried about the things that happened in the past and how they influence this moment, we lose the moment that we're in. And uniquely Christians have this resource. Your past is completely wiped clean by the blood of Jesus. Nothing you have done or failed to do in the past matters because it is forgiven and all of the evil that it caused will be undone when Jesus comes back. It is done. And... Your future is completely taken care of because you have been baptized into Christ, guaranteed salvation, and that same God promises that everything in your life will be worked out for your good. You have nothing to worry about in your future, absolutely nothing to worry about in your past. The only moment you have is right now. So enjoy it. You're in this moment. Love the people who are in front of you. Go slow. Be patient. Rejoice in the good things God gives you. Find peace in the fact that God is going to make it all work out. And ruthlessly eliminate hurry. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to work out the implications of this. For all of you who have all sorts of questions or challenges to this, I'm not sure this works for my life, we're going to get there. And we're going to get to some really practical things. But before we get there, just hear this. Open your heart to me and listen to these words. You're free. You're free. You don't have to worry about that, whatever it is. Your God is infinitely bigger than it and has given you all the resources to deal with it. You do not have to fear your death or anyone else's death. It is finished. So slow down. Let's pray. Jesus, the world around us is constantly encouraging us to worry about more things, do more things, bring more things into our lives. We don't have to fear missing out. We don't have to fear failure. We don't have to feel not, fear not living up because you've already done it all for us. And any bit of failure that we have, you have paid for and you can undo. Any bit of future that we worry about, you've given us the strength to know that you are in control of all of it. So help us to rest, Jesus. To rest in the gospel that it is finished. And that means that it is finished. And that we have this moment now to enjoy with one another, with our spouse, our kids, our community, the good gifts that you have given us. We ask that all in your name. Amen.